0: In our, our world, we have this thing called attention deficit hyperactive, hyperactivity disorder. And anybody have ADHD? You don't have to raise your hand. A couple of you? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> I think some people think I have it. It's certainly possible. I don't, I don't think so, but maybe. According to Forbes Health, more than 366 million adults in the world and this is all the world, they have uh, ADHD. And uh, if you think about it, that's about the population of the United States, so that's a pretty large number of people, adults, who have ADHD. Uh, This attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a neural development disorder characterized by difficulty sustaining attention, hyperactivity, or impulsivity, or some combination of both of those. Uh, And individuals with ADHD may struggle to resist impulses, and follow directions. They might struggle to complete tasks or to remain seated. I heard one time uh, from somebody who studies the brain that about 50% of us learn better when we're standing than when we're sitting. (laughs) If you need to stand, that's fine. Um, I think ADHD gives us a window into the minds of everybody in the culture of our world today. We all have primary resources. When you think about your primary resources, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the thing that you make money with. Uh, for example, we have time. We have skills. Right? These are primary resources, our energy. Um, and we give our time, our energy, and our skills to our employer. They give us money, and we're able to pay f- for things in life with those things. So our primary skills, the things that we have, Um, are really important, but usually we don't think of attention as a primary skill or a primary resource. But I think that it is. It's very similar to time and skill and energy in that it's something that we have, we control, whether uh, we don't earn it, we just have it, attention. When you come to church and you sit in the pew while I'm preaching, um, you give me the generous gift of your time. But it's not until you give me the gift of your attention that you'll be blessed by anything that I have to say. Attention is a really important aspect of our lives. And I think to a degree, we all kind of suffer from ADHD, attention deficit disorder, right? We, we all have a struggle with where we put our attention. And I, I'd be curious um, if we were able to do something, some uh, study right here in this little window of time, how many of you have experienced a distraction in the last two minutes since I started speaking? <laughs> oh, maybe the phone buzzed, maybe somebody did something to your, off to the, to the peripheral vision, maybe, I don't know, whatever happened, and your detention was distracted, right? You're taken away. If you ever watch TV, you'll find that they have these uh, rapid changes in the screen. Every three or four seconds a new angle or a different approach comes. And that's leveraging our our tendency to be distracted, our distractibility. And and so in order to keep our attention, they change the screen so that, that we keep being distracted by them instead of the thing around us. Attention, if you were to define it, is our ability to focus on something and ignore everything else the attention or the ability to focus. I think there's always been things that have pulled our attention away from things of value to things that are frivolous, things that are in front of you to things that are in your periphery, right? There's always been opportunities for that. But my guess is before, I don't know, the 1440, when Gutenberg made the printing press and, and books started to become a thing and newspapers started to become a thing, my guess is that, that, that uh, maybe people got distracted by, I don't know, the fly in the room, or maybe the town crier in the square. I'm not exactly sure what people got distracted by back in the day. I'm sure they did get distracted, uh, but, but 1440, something changes, and we have the ability to produce papers and, and, and uh, books and things, and suddenly people are consuming um, news and, and things like this, Uh, But then it was 2007, probably as significant a moment as the Gutenberg Press. Steve Jobs stood on a stage in Palo Alto and he introduced the iPhone. A complete change in how we think about technology. And it's revolutionized the world that we have today. And instead of being intentionally distracted, like I'm going to change my focus to read the newspaper now, now our phones they distract us without us ever having a choice in the matter. It just kind of happens. A notification comes, and, uh, and we, get, uh, we have to, to choose what we do with our attention. If you know me, you know that I like technology. I appreciate the value that it brings to my work and the efficiency it brings in so many different things. I appreciate the ability to um, make a process Um, easy to follow because of technology. I, I like it, but I think that we should all, whether you have a cell phone or not, we should all do a little bit of an introspective look into our own experiences and ask, are we in control of our own attention? Or do we give control of our attention to somebody or something else? An average smartphone user touches their phone 2,600 times or more every day. Now, I just want to point out that's the average, right? If you were to take a millennial, narrow the the search to uh, just the millennials, that number would double. And, And that's two and a half to five hours a day of time on a phone, 76 or more sessions of interacting with this device. One study found that even if you're just in the same room as your, your cell phone, your uh, memory, your ability to remember things is reduced, their working memory, and your problem-solving ability is reduced. There's something about the attention that just we give it to a device, Now, I'm not suggesting that we throw our smartphones away. If that's what you conclude by that little um, discussion, then that's up to you. But my suggestion isn't so much that we become Luddites and uh, get rid of technology altogether, but that we think about who is in charge of our attention. Do we control our minds? Or do we allow something else to control our minds? Multiple times a day, I'll open up uh, YouTube and uh, maybe I'm doing some research for a project or, or maybe I'm on Wikipedia even. And uh, five or ten minutes later, I, found, I find that I'm no longer researching anything. Uh, I've, I don't know, just disappeared into the, to the, the <coughs> yeah, the rabbit trail. Um, there, there's something, it just sucks you in. Doom scrolling, have you ever heard that term? Instagram, Facebook, all these things that there's this infinite scroll that you can just keep going and keep going and keep going, and an hour goes by, and you're like, oh, um, where where have I been? (laughs) There's something wrong when we're not in charge of our own attention. I wonder if those 366 million adult ADHD um, cases are truly ADHD, or if we have simply normalized distraction. Is it possible that we blame our inability to control our attention on the fact that there are distractions around us rather than taking ownership of our own struggle and hold our focus on things that matter? Whether we're dealing with these uh, modern day distractions or the distractions that uh, Jesus had in his day, I think the solution is the same. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel like you might need rest? Rest for the mind, rest for your body, rest for your soul. I think that a lot of us are living in this constant distractible mode where we're, we're so pushed by life that uh, we're always on, you know, always going, always doing. And Jesus invites us into rest. Paul called the Corinthian church to discipline their minds by bringing every thought into captivity. Second Corinthians 10 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do we have our thoughts in captivity to us? Are they our servants or are we the servants of our distractions? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul is talking to the Philippian church. And if you remember at the beginning, uh, we talked uh, last week about uh, Philippians chapter one and this idea that Paul is calling us to to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And this idea of living in a manner worthy of the gospel reminds us that God has given us this immeasurable gift of forgiveness and grace and we should live as though that grace is deserved by everybody, right? We should give it away just like Jesus gave it to us. That's kind of the initial beginning of Philippians, but then uh, Paul goes into this other idea that it's not too far away uh, from this idea of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, but um, it's really focused on our minds. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, same, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Paul's invitation is that we share Christ's mind. So just take a moment with me and let's ask the question, what was on Jesus' mind that allowed him to do this, to become human, to become a servant, to, to give his life for us? What beliefs and ideas were in Jesus' mind that allowed him to do that thing? I think that um, when, when you go on uh, through Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 3, Philippians 4, you find that Paul uses this idea of, uh, of having the mind of Christ, and he, he interacts with it a bit through a bunch of different ideas. One, he says, don't grumble or dispute with each other. This is something that comes from the mind. He says, hold fast to the word of life. Uh, this is about our mind. Be glad and rejoice. That happens in the mind too. Know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Knowledge is in the mind. He says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, press towards the goal of the prize of God's high calling. Uh, This is something that we engage with in our choice, in our mind. Um, He says, stand firm in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything. Pray and tell God about your requests. All of these things connect with our mind. And then he wraps up his letter in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. Let's just stop there for a moment. Would you like peace Ah, huh. Something about the mind is connected to his idea of peace. Uh, Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. Now, this isn't like correct your thoughts or, you know, like your thoughts are broken and so go in and fix them. No, this is like pay attention and, and the word fix is like, like uh, nail it down. <laughs> Make sure that it sticks there, right? Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Do you see this sandwich of ideas? Have the mind of Christ. Fix your thoughts on things that are lovely. And in between all of these ideas connected to the mind. The first call is to have the mind of Christ, and the last is to fix our thoughts on these admirable things. Jesus told us that out of the abundance of our hearts, which is our frontal lobe, Our heart in the Bible, that that metaphor, is about what's going on, where we can choose, where the moral center is, where we can think about the future and make plans. That's our frontal lobe. So out of what's in your mind, that's what's going to influence the behaviors and the things that you do, the choices you make. Um, So what's in our mind is important. If we have disbelief, discontent, grumbling and distrust towards God in our mind, then that's going to come out in our talk. It's going to come out in the choices we make, in the actions and behaviors that we have. If we harbor inaccurate beliefs or lies about ourselves, about the world, or about our God, then that's going to reflect in the things that we say, in the choices that we make, in the way that we interact with our world and with our God. Our thoughts and our feelings form the basis of our beliefs Think about that for a moment. Our thoughts and our feelings form the basis of our beliefs. And it's from our beliefs that we take action, that we live our lives. I know a man who, in 1999, believed that the Asian markets were going to crash first and then the rest of the world. And Y2K was coming and things were gonna be really, really bad financially. And so he did the wisest thing that he could think of, and he went out and bought a bunch of computer monitors that looked something like this on the screen. These old CRT uh, monitors. And he bought a bunch of these monitors. He spent thousands of dollars. I think they were many hundreds of dollars each. And, and he, I think he got 20 of them. His thinking was that the, the manufacturers in the Asian countries were going to go belly up and they wouldn't be able to produce these anymore. And the demand would be so high that he could double or triple his uh, investment. Well, Y2K happened. Nothing really happened. And, uh, and those manufacturers um, that year switched. And they started producing LCD screens, the thin flat screens. And these things were like really obsolete, ugly paperweights. What we believe influences our actions. That was a very costly belief for that man. Our beliefs about ourselves, about our world, and about God impact what we do. So it's important that we make sure that what we believe is true. Misbelief is something many people harbor. And misbelief is something that that covers a wide spectrum. It could be anything from... What we believe about God, for example, many people believe God is right now uh, roasting people in hell, turning them over the spit or whatever it is. Um, That belief about God impacts what we think about him, how we relate to him and what we do in life. Uh, Some people think after they've uh, made a mistake at school or at work, the thought goes through their mind and the feeling goes through their heart, I can never do anything right misbelief. Let's go back to that first statement in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We'll start with verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves." Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let's think about Jesus' mind. What were his beliefs, his mindset that allowed him to be this self-sacrificing servant that gives himself for us? Well, he tells us what he was thinking. John chapter 10, verse 17 says, for this reason, the father loves me. For this reason. What's the reason that the father loves the son? because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Let's just rephrase this. It's as if Jesus is saying, my father has loved you so much that he loves me even more for giving my life to redeem you. I died in your place taking your sins because I did this. I'm closer to my father than I ever was before. For now God can be just and still save sinners who believe in me. This is Jesus Belief that God loves you so much that he gave, that he loves Jesus even more because he gave his life for you? What do you believe about God? Do you share the mind of Christ and his super confident belief in God's love? If we spent some time on the subject, we could probably find other beliefs that Jesus had. Jesus must have believed that he is God and therefore capable of giving his life in ransom for our own. He must have believed that he would rise again and be with his father again. He believed that the law of love was just and good and that his perfect life and willing sacrifice would satisfy its claims on our lives. These are things that he believed, and I'm guessing if we were to study the Gospels, just to look for Jesus' beliefs, I bet we'd find some really interesting things. If you do that study, could you share it with me? Because I'd love to explore this subject further. What did Jesus believe? What was his mind? With this brief consideration of the mind of Christ, um, we realize that our beliefs about ourselves, and about our world, if they don't match Jesus' beliefs, are going to lead us into some places that Jesus wouldn't want us to go, some ideas about God or about ourselves that wouldn't be healthy. Let's think about one of those misbeliefs that we might have. Uh, Have you ever heard the misbelief that has to do with resources? It goes like this. Uh, There just isn't enough time. Or alternatively, I'm too busy. Or another misbelief is um, there isn't enough of this, uh, this food, this space, this, these clothes, right, whatever it is, there, there isn't enough. Or, or alternatively, there isn't enough money. Right? These are things that we have in our minds, beliefs that impact what we do. If we believe there's not enough of something, what do we do with it? We conserve it. We, we hold it tight. But God has called us to care about people. So if you think there's not enough food, you're probably not going to treat the person as well as you'll treat the food, which kind of gives us uh, the, wrong, um, the, the wrong, uh, an imbalance in how we treat people. Is it possible that we don't have enough time to do all the things that are necessary? Absolutely. It is possible that we don't have enough time. And, and yet, no, it's not possible. We all have 24 hours in a day, right? There's no difference between my day and your day. Uh, and we all have things to do. There's uh, dropping the kids off at school, going to work, um, preparing food, um, You know, the phone call with a friend, a visit to the doctor, a project at church, a prayer meeting, pathfinders, whatever it is, um, morning and evening routines, a sleep, and so many other tasks that fill up our day. But here's the thing. We are in control of our resources. Our time is ours to give away. Uh, Let's just do an experiment. If you got a, a job offer that had better pay, a better boss, um, better hours, um, better benefits, right? In every way, it was more ideal for your uh, passions and interests and skills. Better in every way, would you say, I'm I'm so sorry, I just don't have time to add this to my week. I've already got a -a 40-hour-a-week job. I can't have another one. Would you do that? What would you do? you'd quit your job. You'd say to your employer, I'm sorry, I've got to go. And then you'd say yes to the new job because we have time for what we value. When we spend our time, we spend it on things that we value, which makes you kind of stop and think about the doom scrolling of Facebook or Instagram or TikTok because is it true that we value that? Sometimes we, not thinking too much, invest our time in things that aren't worthwhile. They, they're frivolous, you might say. And so because we've expended our time on something that isn't of value, we don't have time or we feel like we don't have time for those things that are genuinely valuable. For example, what's more valuable? Spending time in God's Word and in prayer or catching up on whatever is on Facebook. And yet, we fall into Facebook, and find ourselves saying, I don't have time for the Bible. Is it true that we don't have enough time? Yes and no. No, because we get to choose what we value and how we spend our time. Jesus told the story of a man who leased a field for planting crops. And as he was plowing, he runs into this treasure, immediately stops plowing, runs back to his house, sells everything that he has, and he goes and he buys that field because he recognizes that everything that he possesses isn't as valuable as the thing in the field. And so he gives up one thing, or many things actually, to get the other. This is the principle, I think, that we need to think about when we think about time we can choose what we spend it on. Sometimes we need to give one thing up so that we can do the thing that is really valuable. What do you value? Do you value money, position, time with family, spiritual growth, entertainment, football? What is it that you value? Make sure that you make the choices to focus your attention on the things of value, and you'll find that you have time for everything that's important to you. If you value it, you'll have time for it. Uh, wh- what if uh, what if you think that there is not enough food? Is it true that we could have too little food to feed the crowd that's in front of us? Absolutely. Um, we have a, a, a meal at our house a little bit later today, and... Uh, and I'm sure my wife has thought about this more than once already. <laughs> Will we have enough food? Um, it's just one of those things that you ladies uh, do so, so well for us. You make sure that we're provided for. Uh, thank you for that. It is possible not to have enough food. And yet it's not because if we're doing the ministry of God and if God is all-powerful, If he is truly the God that could bring food in the mouth of a bird, rain it down from heaven, or turn some loaves into food enough to feed thousands, then there is never a point at which we will not have enough, because he is the God of all resources. A lot of how we process these, um, I don't have enough ideas, is about what we believe, do we believe God is powerful? Do we believe he's involved and engaged in caring about our particular circumstance? When Peter and Paul went to pray at the temple, they met a lame man as they were going. He held out his hand and asked for an alms. You know the song, right? And, uh, and what did Peter and John say? We don't, we don't have any resources. Ah, but they did, didn't they? We don't have any resources, but we'll give you what we have. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Because they serve the God of limitless resources. And you and I have the same God, don't we? Do we serve a different Jesus than Peter and John? No. We have the same resources at our disposal. The, the conservation of resources mindset is a mindset, a belief that there's not enough But God calls us to a different kind of belief, a different mindset, the mindset of abundance that God will provide. I think that that mindset of abundance is something that's really important for us as Christians to to have, to hold in our hearts. This moment of not enough is not dependent on me and my resources, This moment is dependent on my God who has limitless resources. And so let's talk and act in faith. He has a thousand ways to provide for our circumstance that we could never even imagine. A thousand ways, not just one, a thousand. He has all the resources. We have a good, good father He wants to provide for us in every way we need, but unfortunately, sometimes we look at our circumstances, the moment that we're in, and we doubt God's goodness, or we doubt God's ability to provide. Um, Maybe you're experiencing significant pain day after day. You pray, and you wonder why God hasn't taken your pain away, and you may begin to doubt God's goodness. Maybe your body has betrayed you, you're facing a growing cancer or something like this, and and the treatments are worse than the, the, the disease, it seems. And you just are wondering, where are you, God? Why haven't you healed me? We've been praying. Maybe you're struggling to make friends. People don't seem to get you, and uh, somehow you're always left out on the outside of some group. Maybe you even see some people gathering together, and you feel like they intentionally left you out. And you pray, and you ask God for a friend, for a connection, and nothing seems to change month after month. It's natural for us to to blame God and to look at him and say, why aren't you answering my prayer? Why aren't you bringing good things into my life? Remember when Jesus looked up to heaven? He thanked God, took those loaves and fishes and broke them into 12 baskets and 12 baskets fed thousands of people. God did that. The Father did that. But He was also the Father who, by the Holy Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness. And for 40 days, He had no food. 40 days, He was hungry. By the end of that time, He was met by an angel of light who said, if you are the Son of God, uh, make these stones into bread. You can provide for yourself. And Jesus had an opportunity, a a moment of belief he could either believe that God didn't care about him, that the Father wasn't providing for him, that he didn't have the power to bring these resources to him, or, and in that, in that case, he would probably turn the rocks into to bread, right? Or he could stop and say, I don't understand the moment, but I do understand my God. He is faithful, he is good, and he will provide. And that's what Jesus decided to do. You might remember that he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What do we believe about God? Are we in the place where we could, in the wilderness like Jesus, say, you know what? Even if I never eat again, my God is good. I'll survive by his words. Hmm. Something about what we believe in our minds, what we hold in our minds, makes a big difference about how we live our lives let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. At the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he wrapped up uh, with this call to fix our thoughts on things that are good. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise I don't think this is just a call for us to be careful about the media that we watch, right? The things that we put into our mind, you know, let's not watch violence, let's not watch false things or, you know, read books that are like this. I think that's how this text has usually been interpreted. Um, It's about a a filter through which we pass all of the stuff we're supposed to put into our minds. Um, Think about the things that are this way, don't think about the things that aren't. And I think that that's true. What we consume often will influence our beliefs. I'm going to take this in a direction that you might not want me to go. You might be one of those people that likes the news. And uh, if you've noticed, if you've watched or read the news uh, for any length of time, you'll find that it doesn't matter where your source is, what you're going to get is gossip about politicians and about famous people. Uh, you're going to get uh, stories about the violence in our world, uh, police violence, and um, the the violence of war, and so many other things, gang violence, you'll see all kinds of violence in the news. Uh, You'll get, uh, oh, just all kinds of things that we could put in that category of not lovely, some of them certainly not true, um, and definitely uh, not of good report. And that changes how we think about life. It skews our perspective. For every uh, report of police violence, you could find a thousand instances of noble heroes that are working for our protection and safety and who do it in a kind and wonderful way. For every war that's being fought in our world today, you can find dozens of examples of countries that are working closely together in partnership and peace. For every bad politician that's acting in bad faith and all just going for power and prestige and money and whatever else they do, you could find politicians who are careful and thoughtful and interested in the best good of their country. But when we just absorb the sensational, which is what catches our attention the shiny thing in the corner, right? That's what catches our attention. And that's what news is trying to do, grab your attention. And if we just pay attention to what grabs our attention, then we're probably going to be skewed and think that things are mm, not exactly as the real life is. Paul invites us to take control of our attention, to choose what we fix our thoughts on. Will we pay attention to the thing that isn't good To the belief that is wrong? Will we focus on our lack of resources? Will we focus on our discomfort or our difficult circumstances? Or will we choose to give our attention to the God of all comfort? Will we focus on the truths of God's word that tell us that God is good and will provide good things for us in his timing? Will we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is good and lovely, and admirable and pure and honorable honorable and right? Because I think this is what Paul was really wanting us to focus our attention on. Who is true? Jesus. Who is good? Jesus. Who is admirable? Jesus. Who is honorable and right? Jesus. This is the season of Thanksgiving. And I'd like to challenge you in this season to discipline your mind, to believe the things that are true, and to cast off the misbeliefs that hurt you and others, I'd like to encourage you to fix your attention on these good things, maybe to tease out of your life experience all the ways that God has provided good things for you, and to allow your attention not to dwell on the things that are difficult in your life, but to look and behold and wonder at the great gifts that God has given you. There's a book by a guy named uh, William Bacchus and a lady named Marie Chappian. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. If you find that you're struggling with your misbeliefs, these things that you tell yourself about yourself or the world or about God that you know aren't right, they're not completely true, but they, they feel like they're true, you need to read this book. It's a great book that helps you to think about your own thoughts, to bring your thoughts into captivity. There's another book my wife and I have been reading recently, and we're not quite through with it, so I can't guarantee that the the end is good, but the beginning is really good. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it focuses on this idea that we live in this world that we just rush through all the time, and maybe we need to stop and Sabbath, right? Maybe we need to stop our minds and let them rest, like Jesus asked us to do in in, uh, Matthew 11. If you're struggling with your emotions, right? Because it's your thoughts and your feelings that make up your beliefs. If you're struggling with your emotions, this is a great book. SOS, Help for Emotions. Good stuff. And, uh, and if you're like, hey, how do I deal with sin? How do, I, how do I respond when my distractions are clearly sinful? This one's called What Your Counselor Never Told You by same guy, uh, William Backus. What your, your counselor never told you, seven secrets revealed, conquering the power of sin in your life. There's ways that we can bring our thoughts into captivity. And I'd like to encourage you to do that in this moment of life, to be thankful. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Will you stand with me?